0: What's happened is, and and most people don't know this, is you've had this massive consolidation of media in this country where all the newspapers kind of came under about two or three different ownership groups. All the TV stations, your local TV stations are not local TV stations. They're broadcasting locally, but they're owned by a conglomerate that owns hundreds of TV stations across the country and, quite candidly, doesn't care about the local TV station. They don't even care if the local station gets ratings.
1: The following is the audio version of a video released at peakprosperity.com. Visit peakprosperity.com to watch the video and to find other insightful content such as articles, discussion forums, and exclusive subscriber only content. Welcome, everyone, to this Peak Prosperity interview. Today, we're going to be talking with Emmy Award winning investigative journalist Ben Swan. His career in network journalism began in 1998 as a cameraman for KFOX TV. He's since been a sports producer, an evening news anchor, a deep experience as an investigative journalist. But to set that stage, I should probably note that he graduated with a Bachelor of Arts from Brigham Young University at the age of 15 and a master's degree in history from California State University at the ripe old age of 17. So we're talking with a very smart guy here. In 2012, in an episode of his for the series Reality Check, which I watched all the time, this episode went viral because Ben had interviewed President Obama about the controversial drone kill list.
0: Let me ask you then also about the, the so-called presidential kill list that's gotten a lot of attention, mm. and this this list of, of folks who have been targeted for assassination, right. and on that list have been U.S. citizens who have not been afforded trial, including Anwar Awlaki. Mm. Uh, how do you as president, or any president for that matter, regardless of party or person, utilize that power to assassinate even U.S. citizens?
1: Well, first of all, you're uh, basing this on uh, reports in uh, the news that uh, have never been confirmed by me uh, and I don't talk about our national security uh, decisions in that way. He also broke several details about local officials within the Cincinnati IRS office which involved the IRS targeting scandal which was then picked up by national news outlets.
0: The claim that the ongoing IRS scandal was among low-level employees is falling apart. The IRS structure is designed to prevent that. Here's how it works. When an application for tax exempt status comes into the IRS, agents have 270 days to work through that application. If the application is not processed within those 270 days, it automatically triggers flags in the system. He's been praised by
1: Connor Friedersdorf of The Atlantic, Glenn Greenwald then of The Guardian, Byron Tao of Politico, The Huffington Post, and the Columbia Journalism Review. But since then, his reporting has run into what we call the buzzsaw, something I've run into all on my own. Ben, welcome to the program. It's so good to have
0: you here. Chris, Chris, thanks so much for having me on. appreciate it.
1: Well, let's start here. Um, I, I'd love to give people some background. How how did you even decide journalism was the career you wanted for yourself?
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a kind of a funny story, actually. So um, it was never a career that I wanted. In fact, uh, you know, you mentioned uh, the, the early education that I had, right? Graduated from college at 15. I uh, had my, actually my master's by 16. So that was one, wow. one uh, yeah. Little, yeah, little error there. Uh, and so, you know, I was, I was working. I actually wanted to be a, a minister. That's what I had studied to become eventually and had planned to be a, a pastor. I was a lead pastor and a youth pastor uh, for a number of years. And so I was, that's really what I wanted to do with my life. Uh, and I got married at the ripe old age of 20. And I had my first daughter by the time I was 21. And I had some experience as a freelance uh, videographer. Um, and so I said, you know what? I've got to go back to that because I've got I've to be able to support my family. And it's tough to support your family uh, doing full-time ministry. And so I went back and I got into TV doing that. And then set as a, as a videographer again and an editor and said, you know what? I still don't make enough money uh, to support my family because I had my second daughter on the way. And so I went to my boss and said... I need to get in front of the camera because that's, that's what pays. And he said, well, it won't happen. You got to have five years experience to start in this market. I was in El Paso at the time, my hometown. And, and I said, let's find a way. So I, I actually did at the time what a lot of people are doing now, which they call the multimedia journalist MMJs. Uh, at the time, we called them a one-man band and nobody was doing that uh, in the market we were in, which essentially means that you are the photographer and the editor and the reporter. So basically, you get three jobs in one person if they're willing to do that. Uh, for slave wages. And so I was willing to do it and and did that for a couple of years and then kind of parlayed that into, you know, running a a bureau and then became a morning anchor, a primetime anchor. So worked my way up through there. It's not a glamorous story of wanting to change the world. It's a it's a story of wanting to provide for my family.
1: Well, once you were providing for your family, what where where was that turning point for you where suddenly you decided to dig deeper? Do it. Yes, there were two things
0: that really impacted me. One was early on in my career. um, There was a a case in New Mexico. I was working as a bureau chief. I mentioned that. Uh, It was in New Mexico. And um, we were covering the story of a a little girl who was horrifically abused by her mother, her father, and her uh, uncle. And she was abused to the point of death. She was only 18 months old. Her name was Brianna, baby Brianna. And I covered that as a journalist and began reporting on it and talking about this issue. And what I found was, as I started to to really look into this case and others as well, is that at the time, the state of New Mexico had an epidemic of this happening, of children who were being horrifically abused by their parents to the point of death. And at the time, the law in New Mexico essentially said that if you went into a room, right, and you were angry with your kid and you said, I'm going to kill you, and you beat your child to death in that moment you could face uh, a capital sentence. You could get life in prison um, in the state of New Mexico. But if you went into your child's room and said, you're making me mad and I'm just angry right now, and you hit the child one day, and the next day you came back, you hit it again, the next day you threw it against the wall, the next day, whatever, and this went on for a period of time, they, they called it something different. It wasn't murder. It was called child abuse resulting in death. And so what people were getting is anywhere from 10 to 11 years. And then with good behavior, they were out in about five or six years. So you had this epidemic of people who were beating their kids to the point of death. And we're only serving less than a decade in prison and then getting back out again. And so I began to really see that as a, as a very young journalist, that this was something that we could change and needed to be changed, worked with a lot of parents groups at the time and, and advocacy groups, and then went to the, the state Capitol. And actually on the kind of the 11th hour, right before the state legislature one year was about to close up, confronted governor Bill Richardson at the time about it. And, and he pushed for the state legislature to moved to change that law, and they did. They passed a law. It was called the Baby Brianna Act, um, and it it made child abuse resulting in death the same kind of serious crime as murder uh, of your child. And so as a young journalist, that was really a kind of a compelling moment for me. Uh, I had a daughter, I mentioned my my own daughters. Uh, They were about the same age as this little girl. And so I saw the value of being uh, a journalist who dug a little deeper and pushed harder. And then I would say I went for another, you know, Um, near to about five or six years uh, where I really wasn't compelled to do a whole lot more until the drug war po- popped up in Mexico. And then once again, I think something triggered inside of me to see how national media wasn't covering the story, how it needed to be covered, uh, and presenting the truth of what was actually happening in Mexico, which at the time, I was going over there every day. It was the most dangerous city in the world, What is Mexico, and covering uh, the drug war that was taking place there in 2007, 2008. It was, it was pretty incredible.
1: So is it fair to say that, that somewhere along the way, you, you maybe reshaped your ideas about who the mainstream media really is and what they do i know i started out pie-eyed and starry-eyed when i was young maybe the age you're talking about where i thought it's a system it generally works it's it's got some flaws but more or less on balance it's a force of good or it works ish did did you have a moment in there where you suddenly said hmm this isn't what i thought
0: yeah, I, I did. I think what, what for me was so surprising was I always was a bit of a skeptic, right? I thought that media was just money driven, right? And so you chase ratings and, and ratings equals money. And so if you can get ratings, that's that's all they really care about. And so I thought that for a long time. Um, and then as I began to realize that, you know, as I was covering stories in, in El Paso, covering the, the the drug stories and was seeing that the narrative, because listen, it, Truth drives ratings, right? If you just go out and tell people the truth about what's going on, people are interested in it. They're genuinely interested. And I learned that kind of early on as well. And what I found was um, after leaving Texas and going to Ohio and I was covering the, the um, presidential race in, in 2012, that particular year, in 2011, I was covering all that was going on with the election and, and really began to cover what was happening and saw ratings there you know, growing like crazy just because we were telling the truth. We were covering at the time, you know, Ron Paul and the fact that he had this big blackout on him um, by the national media covering, you mentioned the IRS scandal. I was the guy who broke that story a year before it became national news because I had people who came to me and said, hey, listen, we're with these Tea Party groups in Ohio and the IRS is coming to us and they're demanding, you know, hundreds of pages of documents, including printouts of our Facebook pages and our spouse's Facebook pages. Why would they want this in order to qualify to become a 501c3? Uh, Or a 501C4. And so, you know, I I broke that story very early on. And and what I found was as ratings would pour in and people were interested, it had the opposite effect of what I thought it would. I always thought that news managers were going to say, oh, look, here are the ratings. This is great. Get, get us more of it. Whether that's right or wrong, I mm-hmm. thought that was how it operated. That's how it worked, right? You build the business by, by bringing in viewers. And it wasn't that at all. In fact, it was the opposite. It was the more people who paid attention to what you were saying and, and to the truth that you were unveiling to them, uh, the more they wanted you to go away, the more they wanted you to be quiet, the more they wanted you to talk about nonsense that had no meaning for anyone at all. And I remember one of the things that, that I was told, uh, you know, you mentioned I interviewed President Obama. I, I grilled President Obama with five questions, and I encourage people, if you can go out and find it on YouTube, you know, it used to be on my YouTube channel till that got taken down. Uh, but if you have a chance to see it, uh, I'm very proud of the fact that it was, it was not a partisan interview at all. It's so hard these days to find anyone who does nonpartisan work, but it was about facts. It was about saying, listen, you're saying one thing, and this is the reality of it. And confronting a president with reality uh, and not with partisan talking points. And one of the things I found, you know, I had news managers at the time who watched this interview, which, again, as you mentioned, was getting international coverage and and praise from a lot of you know left leaning groups, right leaning groups. Like everyone was talking about the fact that this guy from Ohio was willing to question President Obama about a kill list that he was, you know, his his campaign was talking about, but he wouldn't admit he had. And I had news managers saying to me. Why did you have to ask about that? No one cares about that. Why couldn't you ask about, you know, Cincinnati? Because that's where we were. We were in the city of Cincinnati. Why couldn't you talk about Cincinnati? Why can't you talk about the bridge here? And I'm like, the bridge, the bridge. The president of the United States doesn't care about a bridge, and the people who live here don't care about whether the president, how the president feels about their bridge. And I remember arguing with him at one point and said, well, maybe we could put a Cincinnati Bengals sticker behind me. Would that make you feel better? If that's if that's the kind of credit you got? And they, you know, we used to fight a lot about that stuff. And so for me, it was, it was a process of realizing that the, the business was not what I thought it was. I thought they were in the business of chasing dollars, when in fact, most media is in the business of actually serving a higher master, um, which essentially hands down propaganda to them. This is how we want the world to think. This is how we want the population to operate, you know, convey these messages.
1: So... Thank you for that insight, because I've slowly come to that myself, where I'm confused by watching people who are truth tellers getting great ratings. And I I thought, naively, somewhere along the way that the incentives would align at some point where some other journalist, some newspaper would say, you know what, forget this, we're hemorrhaging, we're having to lay off staff, maybe we should just try this truth thing for a while. And they don't, which means there's a more powerful incentive than their own well-being. And I'm struggling to understand what that is. So you're mentioning the system of control, as it were. There, there's some, some serving the system is more important than making a profit. Is that
0: accurate in your view? Well, I, I, think, I, I do think that's accurate. I think there's a couple of things that cause that to happen, though. One of, one of the things that, that really is a, a catalyst to this is the fact that we don't have a lot of competition in the media space, right? So if we, you know, you go back even you know, 30 years ago, just local TV, if you just talk about local television, right, it used to be that in every market you had anywhere from three to four TV stations, maybe five, if you had those UHF stations, remember those independent ones. And so you might have five, you know, or even six TV stations in in a single market. And what you would find is in those markets, they would all be owned by six different owners or four different owners, however many channels you had, they all had their own owner. And those owners, if you go back 50 years ago, owned one TV station and so you literally had TV stations owned by hundreds of different people across the country, local newspapers owned by hundreds of different families across the country who each in their own community owned a piece of this media, right? And so it was very difficult to convey one message and send that from the top down because you had dissenting voices. And some people cared about money, and some people cared about turning a profit and ratings, you had a different worldview. What's happened is, and, and most people don't know this, is you've had this massive consolidation of media in this country, where all the newspapers kind of came under about two or three different ownership groups. All the TV stations, your local TV stations are not local TV stations. They're broadcasting locally, but they're owned by a conglomerate that owns hundreds of TV stations across the country. And quite candidly, doesn't care about the local TV station. They don't even care if the local station gets ratings at this point. The, the, rate, the way they make money is not by selling those commercials to lawyers and to car dealerships we think it is if you're watching tv and you're in your local town you think oh they're making money because they sell commercials that's how they make money it's not how they make money the way station groups make money these days is they are essentially selling themselves as a block to cable and satellite and saying to cable and satellite pay us for every one of our stations this is how many stations we control and if we're if we hold out and refuse to air on your you know cable provider satellite provider then You'll have to explain that to your your viewers, or sorry, your customers, that our station isn't there because the reason people watch local TV is sports and weather. That's why they watch local TV, and mostly it's weather. Um, and so what you find is these big conglomerates; they control so much that it's easy to send a top-down message to one or two of them because now that whatever you say to them trickles down to hundreds of different TV stations, which means tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people across the country. And it's really consolidated into a few groups. So I think what we see is the lack of competition and the lack of, of actual uh, diversified ownership has created this problem. And then, of course, you have at the network level, just a few companies that own all of it, right? They own everything. And they're also sending down those kind of top-down messages. So the way to break it is you need to create more competition. I, think, I don't think that's ever going to happen
1: not going to happen interesting explanation ben in your deep experience how is mainstream media failing us as a country
0: uh failed us yeah failed us I, i would i wouldn't even give it the the um courtesy of using an active term right because the truth is is that it's it's over with right mainstream media broadcast media print media uh, completely failed us, utterly failed us. And, and it did so really, if you really wanna trace it back, go all the way back to when the, the TV show, 60 Minutes, which everyone's familiar with, uh, became the first television broadcast television show to sell advertising, right? It completely changed the world because they started selling advertising and they became a money-making entity. And then every other TV station realized, oh, this news thing that we do that was a liability before can actually be a moneymaker. And so we see that starting to happen. And, and then what we see now is you have, uh, for a long time, people have looked at media as being biased, slanted. And now in, in the current age that we're in, it's over with, right? It's not slanted or biased anymore. It's just propaganda. It's become the state spokesperson. It's no different than when the Chinese turn on their TV and you have this, this uh, you know state-pushed propaganda um, that, that comes on and tells you that everything's great and that the leader is happy with certain things or unhappy with certain things and everyone needs to get in line. It's no different. The only difference is, is that in China, I think everyone knows what it is. They know that this is the top-down message and it comes from the government. Here, we pretend there's a thing called journalists on television who are still telling us the truth. And and there aren't, with a few exceptions. There really aren't. Uh, They don't exist. In fact, um, and I won't use his name here, but I was just talking to someone this weekend about a prominent reporter at CNN who just quit because they were unwilling to toe the line anymore about vaccines. And they said, "I, I, I can't do this. I can't get up and just lie about this every single day. And the network said you're gone, right? There's no tolerance uh, for anyone who has a different view. And that's, and that's Chris, I got to tell you, that's so hard as a journalist, because the very essence of what we are supposed to do is to be critical thinkers and to question authority. It is the primary function of journalism is to question authority. It does not happen anymore. And you fall in line and you do what you're told or you're gone. And up until about four or five years ago, um, that was okay. Because while broadcast media had failed us, and it has, the internet and social media became the new promise, the new promise of, of a voice, of an opportunity uh, for new information to be out there. Uh, there was a, a saying, I believe it was Thomas Woods, who says um, that the gatekeepers of broadcast media right, are no longer the gatekeepers. Now, the gates are still up and they're still standing in front of them, but the walls around those gates fell down. So nobody needed to go through their gates anymore. And about 2016, there's an interesting document by Media Matters for America that specifically went into detail after the 2016 election that explains to donors that the problem that Media Matters faces is that while they controlled broadcast media, they couldn't control Facebook, and they couldn't control the internet because there were too many users who were out there sharing information. And that's the reason that Trump beat Clinton. This is what the document says. And so the only way to fix that is to get control of social media. And over the next, what has it been, five years since, that's completely happened. And social media has now also failed us by becoming exactly what broadcast media was.
1: I would go even further in that uh, because, at least with broadcast media, I had the opportunity to consume it or not. But but social media giants right now have what I consider to be virtual monopolies. And they are now these gatekeepers. And I've run into it. You've run into it. You just mentioned your YouTube channel got taken
0: down. Why and how big was it when it got taken down? Yeah. So interestingly, uh, I've never had huge numbers of subscribers on YouTube, but content that does extraordinarily well. So hundreds of millions of video views, but only about 200,000 subscribers. So it's never had a huge number. Part of that's because, and you might've come across this before, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, they regularly delete users out of accounts that they don't, they don't want you to follow. It happens to you, right? It, happens to me all it does. The time. They, they, they take them away because they don't want those channels to succeed. They don't want people to see them. Uh, and so that w- had already happened. But uh, the most recent thing was uh, about a month ago, um, I released a video in which I simply said just cited. I was actually it was a it was a debate between me and and this other uh, woman who was explaining why she believed that kids should be forced to be vaccinated to go to school. And I was asked, you know, what's your position on this? And all I did was cite CDC data. I said, my opinion doesn't matter as a journalist, right? How I feel doesn't matter. But I want to show you what the CDC says. And the CDC showed that between August of 2020 and August of 2021, that a total of eight children had died from COVID in the United States. Eight, not 80,000, not 800,000, not 8 million, eight. And that doesn't mean that you minimize the deaths of those children. But what it does say is you don't take 73 million kids And forcibly vaccinate them against a virus that in a year killed eight. We've had far more kids who have died as a result of suicide from lockdowns than we have who have died from COVID. And so I was simply sharing CDC numbers. And again, if you disagree with the CDC numbers, that's fine. But don't make me responsible for the CDC's numbers. At some point, we have to have some, you know, level of of agreement upon what is considered accurate or inaccurate. And so YouTube simply deleted my channel. They first removed the video, but an hour later they deleted the channel, sent me a message and said, your channel has been deleted. Uh, I sent back an appeal and said, cause you can appeal it and said, hey, why was my channel taken down? These are CDC numbers that I'm citing. Uh, in an interview where I was asked specifically about this and they, within 30 minutes, I got an automated response saying, we're keeping it down. You, you can't come back. And not only that, by the way, but you, Ben Swan, are never allowed to create a channel on YouTube again under a different name uh, for any reason, right? You can't not only have the old one back, you can never have a new one. And honestly, my response to that is that's fine. I, I really don't care. I'm not going to continue to build on YouTube. I'm not going to continue to go to other people's platforms, their real estate, and try to build my house. It's, it's crazy. It belongs to someone else. Keep it and I'll go someplace else.
1: It's a it's an odd business model, I think, because what uh, so I'm a content creator, you're a content creator, mm-hmm. um, many tens of millions of views, less than you've had, but but certainly significant. And I get treated poorly. By, uh, it's, mm-hmm. it's this is like this is like you come over and you help clean somebody's house and they, they just get a cane out and they start whipping you from time to time because they just feel like it. It feels very predatory, abusive. Silicon Valley has lost me as a concept. It feels quite pathological, if not psychopathological at this point in time, just a bunch of psychopaths. So I've decided, yeah, let's, let's, um, let's build this alternative media because here's what I learned in COVID, Ben. This was fascinating. I'm a scientist. So all I was doing was, was relating science. I was getting all these views because I was one of the first people to come out January 23rd, 2020. I said, hey, pandemic coming a month and a half before the who said the word pandemic i was like using their own guidelines and saying looks like a pandemic right i was having this massive climb in subscribers because people were hungry for that context for the truth one day i mentioned hydroxychloroquine and my viewer Mm -hmm. count flatlined and started going down right subscribers and, and viewer counts, everything was over at that point in time and this is even before Trump had gotten involved or, you know, had become Trumpified or whatever that story was. And that's where I, I call that the buzzsaw. When you run into a story or a narrative that's against the official approved narrative, they just have their ways of shadow banning you, over hard banning you, crushing you. That's the that's the landscape we're in right now. And that's it feels to me like something that we have to fight and fight yep. hard because Perversely, the Washington Post tagline is, Democracy dies in darkness." Well, this is darkness to me. It is. How do we how do fight darkness. this?
0: Well, th- there's a couple of things. One of them is, obviously, you know we have to create alternative platforms and and, you know, obviously, we're doing that, right? We've launched Sovereign, which is our platform. It's a social media streaming video platform. So we have to create that. And, and I, it's imperative that people understand this. You know, it's difficult to to look at the social media landscape and say, oh, well, you know, there are people who say we just all need to find one new alternative, right? And everyone goes to that alternative. I think that's a huge mistake. Um, That's not how social media was born in the first place, right? You have Facebook, you have Twitter, you have YouTube, Apple and Google, Amazon, right? Those are the big tech companies uh, in in the world, not just in the United States, but in the world. And what those companies do, and I mentioned Google and YouTube, even though they're owned by the same group, Alphabet, um, they are different entities. And the reason that's important is because what Silicon Valley did was they all carved up the social space. And they each kind of divvied it out to, for each one to control and dominate a certain uh, part of the technology space in order to kind of influence the world in a certain way. So you were talking about them being monopolies. They are monopolies, but they're, they're more than just monopolies, right? They're monopolies that are colluding together to each uh, control their shared space. So it's like a bunch of of uh, lords in Scotland or England, right, who have divvied up the the landscape and said, well, I'll control this chunk of land and you control that one and you control the coastal region. and, and, And so everybody has theirs. And then they actually collude together to destroy and eliminate any competition that comes along. And they have this pact between them. So, you know, one thing about monopolies is we tend to think of them as highly competitive where they want to smash all competition. And one day, you know, one ring to rule them all, right? One one entity is going to rule everything. That's not what these guys are doing. And so it's a mistake to see them that way. And instead, what we have to recognize is, you would think, for instance, that Google and Apple are competitors, right? Apple has the iOS in their system. Google creates Android. And so they're, they're automatically competing with each other. But the truth is they're not competing with each other. In fact, Google is paying Apple about 4 to $5 billion a year to make Google the, the standard um, and automatic default search on their iPhones. Now, if they're competition, why would Apple say, yeah, we'll do that. We'll actually you know, a- accept 4 or $5 billion from our competitor because doesn't that weaken your position if they're also building the competitive uh, technology? But they don't see it that way. You know, uh, Google pays Facebook to not build out its ad department when it sells ads on video, right? So we all know that Facebook's ma- main uh, product is you the user, right? Your data is actually their product. So Facebook says, well, we don't need the ad- advertising revenue. So Google says, okay, here's $4 billion, Facebook. Don't compete with us on this space so that we can dominate and control all of the advertising dollars on the internet. So what they've done is they have these, this collusion going on between them that protects them from, from anyone coming up as an upstart. And so one of the things we have to do is recognize that all of these companies, Apple, Google, Facebook, Amazon, Twitter, all of them, Are working against us actively. They are not our friends. They are not on our side. They will never uh, shift back to say, okay, guys, we've gone far enough. Now it's time to let the truth back in, right? It's now it's time to allow debate to return to society. Now it's time to allow people to have a difference of opinion. They're never going to do that. What they're going to do is continue to build your reliance and dependency on their product uh, in order to live your life, and then they're going to continue to narrow how you view the world. That's, that's truly what they see. And so one way that we have to overcome that is build separate technologies, build them outside of Silicon Valley, which is what we're doing, build it away from, from what they're using. And then I think one thing that we have to do is start exposing, um, exposing each other to the idea of the original concepts of what makes this country great. Debate, discussion, disagreement, point of view, freedom of belief, freedom of conscience, the right to speak about something, even if you're wrong. You still have the right to speak if you are dead wrong in what you're saying. It's okay. But what we've done is we've created a fake narrative that says the most dangerous thing is someone who's wrong. And so the biggest liars and the most wrong people in society get to dominate that.
1: Uh, Yeah, super well said. And, And I actually think that this is my personal view. Um, this is a really critical juncture. You mentioned, you know what what made our country great? Well, at least part of that has to be that you have a broad and rich middle class, right? And yes. we know that every South American country with a little tiny elite and a very, you know oppressed majority underneath, they're not stable places to live. I don't want to live there. I want to live in a stable, peaceful, prosperous country. I think that yep. what the the social media giants, but it's more of that. We have institutional failures. The Federal Reserve is making sure the billionaires are more billionaire. And the FDA is making sure that nobody can compete, you know, with the messages that comes through pharma companies. And all of this is about more power, more money, more control for a very tiny elite. And we should have a robust discussion about that. Like, well, that's the direction we're going. Do we want to go there and why? But we don't even get to have the conversation because... Well, the tiny elite doesn't want us to have that conversation because it might be awkward for them. But you know what I love, Ben? I love seeing the little eruptions come out. Let's go, Brandon. Right. We had a national news person on there try and do what the media is doing, which is reshape something in the in the in the moment. Right. That wasn't the chant that was being said. And so to me, the way I interpret that chant is these are people saying we don't agree with lockdowns forever. We don't agree with masks without science. We don't agree with vaccine mandates for all sorts of reasons. We don't agree with the tiny oligarchs getting more oligarchy and and more powerful. We don't agree with elections that we can't verify and have confidence in. There's a very wide set of legitimate grievances, and we're supposed to be able to petition, but we can't anymore.
0: That's right. That's right. The redress of grievances is that other part of the First Amendment, right? So if you think about it, like the entire First Amendment is actually a progressive amendment, right? So your, your freedom of speech, your freedom of religion, all of those things, they, it builds upon itself. years ago I did a video explaining this, but it kind of builds upon itself that starts with your freedom of conscience, just to believe what you believe, then your right to actually say what you believe. But if you, your right to speak doesn't matter if you don't have a right to believe something. If you don't have a right to think, then your right to speech doesn't matter. Then you go out and you speak, and then it comes, it comes with that is your freedom um, of the press, right? And the freedom of the press is not, I've heard people say that's the only uh, profession that's mentioned in the, in the uh, Constitution. It's actually not. It's not a profession. Freedom of the press was not about uh, some company or corporation having the authority to speak. Press was anyone having the ability to now disseminate their views. If you go back to like common sense written by Thomas Paine, right? Mm-hmm. That was a pamphlet that Thomas Paine put together and began distributing on his own and passing it around. It wasn't about the elite or some corporation having authority. It was about you have the right to, again, your conscience and your belief system, that's the religion part. Now to say something about it, that's the speech part. Now to not only say it, but to influence others in that Today, that's called, by the way, misinformation and disinformation, your ability to share with somebody else your conviction and your belief. In the Constitution, it's called freedom of press. And then from there, and your right to redress of grievances. What is that? That's your right to go out and protest and speak and demand, not just I'm mad and I'm not going to take it anymore, but to go to those who are in elected authority and say, you will either represent us or we will remove you. From your position of authority and that's the other thing is that when you take away you mentioned elections right now right youtube hates that stuff so this will have to be on the longer version Mm -hmm. Uh, the the talk about elections elections are insane right now like this idea that you cannot verify an election you can't you can't know how many people voted you can't know whether or not someone still lives in your state or you're having drop boxes here in georgia where i am in atlanta I mean, there's no question there are ballots being pulled out in the middle of the night under a table and no one can verify where this came from or verify anything, right? So you take all of that away. And if you remove those, those foundations of that very First Amendment in our country, now we move to the Second Amendment. So we don't wanna to get to the second amendment. So we gotta go back to the first and give people back their ability to speak and their right to a voice and their right to influence and debate and discuss. That is so critically important. And it's, it's being stolen from us. One thought on the let's go Brandon, You know, I have a little bit of a different take on it. So I agree with you hundred percent that when people say let's go Brandon, they see this as a great example of gaslighting, right? Uh, um, a person who's in the media They hear one thing being said, even paused and listened to it, and then says, oh, look, they're saying, let's go, Brandon. No, they're not. Obviously, they're not. But here's my personal belief. I actually believe the reporter didn't know that she was getting it wrong. I think that, and this is something that people miss, the people who are in media in this country are so disconnected from the rest of it that even though it had already been viral and the the FJB... Uh, chants going on in stadiums across the country have been happening every weekend at college football games, national NFL games. And it had already been happening. And, and those voices were being heard. But people who are sitting in those newsrooms across the country are so disconnected. She probably had no idea what that chant was, had never heard the chant before, had no clue about it, and then heard it in real time, didn't understand it. Because even though on video it's easy for us to understand, sitting in the stadium might be hard to understand. And so she did what so many reporters do. I don't actually know what they're saying. So I'm just going to make something up right off the top of my head that this fits this, this will work. And so she filled in the gap herself. People see it as gaslighting, but I think it's also a great example of the disconnect that most media have with the, with the world. They pretend that they are reporting to and explaining to you have no idea what's being said because you're completely out of touch with the world around you.
1: Well, thanks for that. I, I I could I won't disagree at all that that's a possibility, and the way it was received by a lot of people was, hey, it's just here's you know perfect exemplar of gaslighting. Even if it was just a metaphorical, it sort of touched the nerve, right? And absolutely. And so people have a sense of power back around it, and I think that's that powerlessness is really, as they say in in the permaculture, which is permanent agriculture, they say the problem always has the solution. I feel now that the narrative is breaking down very, very badly for them. So here's the main narrative. Coronavirus is this extraordinarily terrible pandemic. It just kills lots of people. It puts you in the hospital, um, and we have to give vaccines to everybody. That's the way out of this. You get your life back if we can do that. And of course, as you know, because I've watched your, your specials on it, that that's not a good narrative anymore because we have data from Israel, from the UK. We find out that, oh, the vaccines don't last that long. Oh. The worst part, though, is the level of side effects and even deaths, serious adverse events that come from this. Instead of just saying, yeah, they're a part of it. We kind of rushed it. They're real. But let's let's uh, let's acknowledge them. There's this overt, complete suppression of anything related to that inquiry, including by our CDC, FDA. They're all suppressing this information, along with all the mainstream media, plus the social media giants. So question is, given given that universe that wants to pretend as if this thing, this fact, these vaccines have no side effects when they do. And people who are increasingly discovering that's false. How do you see that story going?
0: Yeah, I, I think it's a, an issue of time sensitivity. So the reason that there is such a push to hurry up and, and number one, keep this cone of silence around vaccine injury, because there are literally thousands upon tens of thousands of people who had been vaccine-injured already. Uh, I've done a series of interviews that we're releasing on Sovereign with people, what's called Faces of Vaccine Injury, of people who were part of the Pfizer tests um, and and part of that uh, initial set, who have suffered immense injury, you know, nerve damage, par- paralysis, and even death in some cases. From, from the original, uh, Ben, I'm sorry, from the original six-month study they did? From the original study that they did, this was in order to get an EUA, Pfizer had done this this test and they had given these vaccines to a a number of people. Um, And among those people, there are at least at minimum 5,000 people who suffered adverse side effects, including severe nerve damage, tremors, paralysis and death. As a result of that, you say, well, wait a minute, this can't be true. Why haven't I heard about it? And the reason you haven't heard about it, as I discovered when I began interviewing these people, is that uh, the FDA and Health and Human Services, while they've had conversations with these people, they refuse to acknowledge that any of their injury is the result of a vaccine, even though in almost every case, uh, the side effects began within hours of first receiving the vaccine. In some cases, it's the first dose, but in most cases, it's the second dose of the Pfizer um, where this has happened. And what's, I mean, unbelievable, you're talking to these people, Chris, and and they're explaining to you, you know, that in some cases they had it within 24 hours and one woman, it's her daughter, right? She had a son who had COVID, another son who was given the placebo, and then her daughter was given the actual Pfizer vaccine. On the second dose her daughter immediately feels the sensation, which, by the way, has come up in multiple interviews now. A feeling like water was running down the inside of her arm, and then it begins to have, um, you know, a- a huge anxiety. Her heart is racing. They have to go to the hospital, and the and the doctors are telling her, her daughter, who to this day, in October of 2021, right? So it was in January that she got the shot. By October, she still can't walk. <laughs> And they're telling her it's because of anxiety. You must have anxiety. So here's what I have found is happening, is that in thousands of cases, there were people who were injured as a result of these vaccines, and none of it gets into any of the data because the the FDA and Pfizer itself and Johnson & Johnson, none of these companies will acknowledge that the result of this person's injury has anything to do with a vaccine. And this is what is so troubling when the FDA now goes ahead and and their board approves giving these vaccines to five to 11 year olds. Right. And they're saying, well, we don't even know what the uh, um, side effects could be. We'll have to find out once we start giving out the vaccines. That's insane. You don't test people this way. You know, there, there's been an argument made about the Nuremberg trials, that this is, this is what we're going through. That's literally what this is. You are testing the vaccine on children and saying, we'll find out whether or not it affects them. And so what's amazing about these interviews, and I encourage people, go to Sovereign.media to watch them, um, we're, we're releasing these a few at a time, is to see that there are, as I said, in one group, just one group alone, 5,000 people as part of the test group on which these were tested who wound up with serious side effects.
1: Um, That's that's amazing.
0: That's amazing. So so there
1: were roughly 22,000 people in both the control and the Pfizer jab for first, but then when they unblinded it, they let some of these 22,000 controls also get the jab. Are you saying it's in that larger group?
0: 5,000 out of no more than 40,000? I'm saying, yeah, of the people that we've talked to, They were all part of these original tests, and there are at least 5,000 of them. Uh, Now, that's I haven't talked to all 5,000, so let me be clear about that. But of the ones I've talked to, this is what they're telling me. And and every single person I've talked to so far was part of the original control groups of the Pfizer, except for one guy who was part of the Johnson & Johnson group. That was was separate. And he did it when there was some kind of pressure back in April to start testing and trying the Johnson & Johnson, and he's paralyzed. Right? He's, he can't get out of a walker and was getting ready to retire and, and can't walk now. He's lost his, his farm. He's lost the, the cattle that he was taking care of. He can't do anything. And so what he says is, listen, I'm not even saying that we shouldn't have the vaccine. I'm saying you've got to recognize what's happened to us. And, and he talks about, in his case, you know, th- there has been so much money poured out to all these different programs. What are you doing for the actual people who have been injured? Is there anything that, that's being done? Well, the reason nothing's being done is because no one will acknowledge anyone's been injured. Turn on your television any night, which I you know, don't necessarily recommend. They're never going to tell you that anyone's been injured. They say it's safe and effective, that nobody's been harmed by this thing. And, and what's so upsetting about it is that when you start talking about now giving it to kids, we don't know anything about the long-term side effects. We know that in some cases, short-term side effects are having uh, this incredible Um, um, harm that's been done to people. And by the way, we also now have, and pay attention to this because you can, you can mark my words as a prophet. Look at the data that's coming out right now. There are a a striking number of young people who are starting to have heart attacks around the age of 22, 23, 24 years old. There's an article that came out recently that talks about the, the rise of heart attacks among healthy 22 year old women. Mm -hmm. What? Like, how is that happening? And how is no one saying how many of those women were vaccinated? How many of those women got the Pfizer shot? I don't know the answer to that, right? But that's what journalists should be doing is what scientists should be doing is saying, wait a minute, is something happening here? Is there a correlation between a heavily vaccinated population and now suddenly having a number of people? Uh, Alex Berenson, who writes on Substack, talks about there are two uh, major league soccer players who have recently suffered heart attacks as a result. Well, we don't know it's as a result who have recently suffered heart attacks and who were both double vaccinated. And so you have to ask, why, why are soccer players, some of the fittest people on the planet, suffering from heart attacks at very young ages? And to ignore that, in my opinion, is criminal.
1: And I'll go further into the immoral stage of this. I'm sure you've seen this, but in London, Ontario, the hospital systems are now standing up code units for kids who have strokes they've never needed them before. But all of a sudden, somebody in in the leadership structure in these hospitals has said, you know, maybe we should stand up some pediatric stroke units uh, and and get ready for this. Like who, let's talk morality for a second. What kind of a nation sacrifices its children for, and I don't even know what, I'd love to get your view on what this is even about. But if this is just money, I'm really disappointed in us as a species and as a culture. But um, first up, what is going on here that we are willing to sacrifice the health of our children for a narrative?
0: Well, I think a couple of things have happened. And I, I will say that the, the folks who are pushing this have been very, very smart about the process in which they've done it, right? And, and part of that is, is that if I can take away your livelihood, if I can take away your family's future, if I can take away your job, your profession, your voice, right, and you feel like you're the only one who's going to die for a cause, you'll sit down and shut up. Mm -hmm. And, And so far that has worked. There are a lot of people who know that something is wrong. They know in the medical field that something's wrong. And so they try to speak up. And if they do try to speak up, they either get silenced, as I said, or shut down, everything gets taken away. And so then they ask the question, which is a fair question, why should I die on this hill? Right? Why should I give up my future, my family's future. Why should I go through that for this? Some, it's someone else's job to say something, right? And so we've thought that for a while. And, and I equate it to, it may sound dramatic, but I equate it to the, the story of, and there were a number of these stories uh, back in the 70s and 80s. I don't know if you remember this, Chris, but there were home invasions that took place and people would go into these homes and they would tell the homeowners, we're gonna tie you up, right? And the homeowner would agree. They'd sit down and they'd, they'd tie them up. And then they would, you know, I'm going to rob you, I'm going to take this, I'm going to take this. And they wind up killing or torturing these people for a long time, ultimately killing them at the end. Um, And and law enforcement began to put out information, right, in the 70s and 80s, warning people about home invasion, saying never let them tie you up, right? If they tell you they're going to tie you up and then they'll let you go afterwards or they're just going to do this for now, don't believe them, right? Fight to get out of there. Don't stay. And then this was a warning that actually went out because people had this, this belief that if you, they tell you something, right, and they're only going to go to this point, you believe them because you're hoping that they're telling you the truth. And that if, they, and if you do what they tell you to do, if you comply, right, then they'll leave you alone. They'll, they'll spare your life. And so what you find is there's, a, 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 I think, a, almost a psychosis that goes along with people where they want to believe that if, I, if you're just telling me I only have to go to here, only wear a mask. For two weeks, okay, all right, I'll do it. I mean, I say two weeks. I in the rest of your life. But just mm-hmm. wear the mask, and if you just wear the mask, and now if you just stay home from church, and you just stay home from your business, and if you only eat outside, and if you only vaccinate, and if you only double vaccinate, and now you only quadruple vaccinate, right? If you just do what we tell you, because you even alluded to it, this is the way out. They keep telling us that there's a there's an additional phrase on all of this messaging that says. This is not forever. This is just till we get out. If you just comply until we can get out, then everything will go back. So you have this huge swath of the population that believes that. They're the ones who are willing to be tied up. Okay, you can tie me up as long as you won't hurt me. As long as you'll let me go at the end, then then I'll go along. What I think is increasingly, increasingly happening now is we see people saying, they're never going to untie you, right? So I refuse to be tied. And I refuse to go along because I don't believe you. You're lying. So instead, I'm, I'm deferring to that other response, which is, I've just got to fight you the whole way. Got to fight you on everything. So you tell me, just mask up. It's not a big deal. Well, you may have thought that turns out it is a big deal. Why? Because you're, you're, this is becoming the new form of compliance, right? Prove to me in a position of authority that you are a good subservient serf. And wear your mask. I won't wear it anymore. Right? I, I won't I won't be willing to do anything you're telling me to do because you have proven that every step along the way you've been lying to me. And I think that's where uh, I think it's heading. I think there are more and more people who are moving now to the side of non-compliance. I won't comply. I try to do it. I try to be nice. Try to get along. I try to pretend that 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 you were sincere when you told me you wanted a way out of this. And meanwhile, you know the pharmaceutical companies reap billions of dollars. Meanwhile, we go from get your vaccine to you, you're going to need four shots and you're going to need one every single year for the rest of your life. And you go to what is the phrase that's now being used? We're being told this isn't the last one. There'll be others. And if there are others, that means they're just going to repeat this playbook. So at some point you have to be willing to no longer comply. Wow. That's very
1: well said. You know, as, as, uh, as I've remarked in the past, the hardest part about two weeks to flatten the curve is the first 20 months. You know, it gets easier from there. Right. But one of my other big reporting areas is it was May of 2020. I I looked at the sequence of this virus. I said, oh, this thing came out of a lab. Completely obvious. Right. I was derided as a conspiracy theorist until for some reason in January of 21. They're like, oh, yeah, maybe we could talk about that now. So that was, you know, somebody let that go. But Anthony Fauci is very clearly up to his eyeballs in having created this particular virus and then it's also not that hard to find out that they, whoever they are, they were working on these vaccines well in advance of this coming out. And they'd been talking about having a, a SARS-like right. thing come out. And this had been a big uh, program of study since probably at least 2015. And then we had Event 201 in 2019 and all that. So so this is clearly sort of a semi-planned thing. I'm Ben, I'm shocked at the level at which even sitting U.S. senators and congressmen are unable to view the emails of a career bureaucrat in this case, Fauci, when all we want to see is what were you talking about on January 29th to February 1st with all these non-NIH scientists from around the world, that then led to the publication of these things that said this must have come from nature, right? It's just it looks like a cover-up. Right. It smells bad, and somehow we're at a state in our governance in the United States where a bureaucrat can stonewall the elected person. So when we talked about elections, you said, well, you know, we have our redress. Well, at least we can vote the buggers out. Well, you can't, if you have a permanent government, I can't vote yeah. Anthony Fauci out. I don't even know how to get about around that. So how do we, given that structure, how, how do we regain some power in that story?
0: Well, I, I, the truth is, is that we're going to have to have some extremely courageous people running for office, right? Uh, and it's, you know, please understand it's figurative, but yep. it's got to be people with machetes, right? Who are going in and saying, and, and the crazy thing is, if you go back over 10 years ago, You know, a guy named Ron Paul was running for president, and he was the crazy old guy at the end of the stage who kept talking about the bureaucratic state being too big, the deep state controlling government, about the the military industrial complex being too big. And and someone, he kept saying, and he was going to be the guy, right, had to come in and start cutting out the bureaucracy, start removing departments from within the core landscape of what's in Washington, D.C., and eliminating entire departments, just get rid of them completely, just flat out. And everyone said he was crazy. That guy's crazy. The, 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 the amazing thing is a decade later, we look at it and I think you have to say, it's the only thing that makes sense. How do you control, as you said, you know, an institution like the NIH, NIAID, that actually controls all of the science in the country because they give out billions of dollars in grants. Anthony Fauci has more power over what is published in medical journals than any person on the planet because the NIH hands out billions of dollars in grants to universities and to study programs in order to get information that he wants. And if you, if you research anything he doesn't like, or anything that goes against what he wants to see out there, right? You don't get the grants. So all of the grants are pointed toward institutions that bend the knee. And so, okay, we'll do whatever you want because we want that money, right? All the universities want that money. And so he has the power to completely dominate all of this information. And that's happening across the board from one kind of bureaucratic institution to the next. They completely dominate and control Um, influence over society. I'm sure you saw this this new thing the Wall Street Journal has reported about um, the Department of Homeland Security talking about wanting to give $450,000 per person to every migrant who was involved in a family separated at the border, right? How insane is this idea? And, And when you hear this idea, it only tells you one thing. This idea was only designed to drive a wedge between Uh, Americans over this issue, right? Because the numbers are so unbelievably high. It's $450,000 per person, which means the average family would do over a million dollars, right? And these are people who, whether you feel bad for them or not, broke the law, entered the country illegally, did not wait uh, in line, did not go through any kind of process. And by the way, yeah, do that. Hand out millions of dollars to immigrant families. And you're going to have, you think you have a, a lot of people coming over now, record numbers coming over now, hand out one check, one check mm-hmm. to one family, and you're going to bring the poor of all over the world. And why wouldn't you, right? Of course they're going to come. And so what you see is there's all these bureaucratic entities that in their own little areas are controlling policy and lawmakers, elected lawmakers actually have no authority and they have no power and they have no influence. And the other reality is, is that they're there for a few years, and then they're gone. And the bureaucratic state knows that. They don't have to, to change their ways when you get a, a Trump in the White House, a Biden in the White House, an Obama, a Bush. It doesn't matter, right? Because the, the bureaucratic state knows they're going to outlast all of you. So The only way you fix that is you get some, some people who come into office and say, when I come in, that the bureaucratic state's going to die. Right? We're going to get rid of that bureaucratic state. We're going to start to remove it like a cancer. We're going to have to cut it out. And that's literally what you're going to have to do. You have to remove these entities and agencies. You're going to have to take away their power. You're going to have to make the CIA and the NSA and the FBI far less powerful than they are. You're going to have to make the IRS far more uh, less powerful than it is. Stop growing its influence and strength and start shrinking these things. But man, that Chris, that is a fight. That's a real fight. And, and quite candidly, that's a 20-year plan. That has to be put together where you say, because one thing that the progressive left, the Marxist left has done is they have for 40 years had a long term plan. Right now, what we're seeing is not their plan over the last couple of years. We're seeing a decades long plan where they have gotten their hands around all the levers of power. We're just happening to live through the pulling of all the levers. So that's why we're feeling the impact. But this was a long time coming. We need a decades-long plan to take back all those levers of power. And, and yeah, eventually they'll be pulled. But it's got to be a long-term thing. It can't be, what are we doing for the next four years?
1: Well, Ben, um, very well said. And, and I'm going to um, pimp a book here, which is, uh, I have got I have an advanced copy of RFK Jr.'s, uh, The Real Anthony Fauci. If you haven't read it, get your hands on it. Anybody watching this, it is a tour de force, standard Robert-style Um he just, it's footnoted, documented, like every possible thing. He doesn't like just make an assertion. It's all there where it came from. And it's astonishing. And he just shows a system of control that this guy has exerted. And he's not a good guy. He's, he's, he was a bad guy during the AIDS crisis. He's been a worse guy here, or maybe just as bad, however you score it, but not a good guy. So you're a good guy though. I want to, how can we help you? And how do we join forces? What do we do? You've got sovereign dot media which is s-o-v-r-e-n dot media uh very cool thing you're setting up let's talk about that and then i want to talk about what we do because we need to join forces is my view
0: Absolutely. So Sovereign not Media, what we've set it up as is a streaming video social media platform, all right, that's been created for the purpose of getting information out there and, and refusing to allow it to be censored anymore by these big tech companies. So what we, you know, if, if your viewers are watching, say they go to Sovereign, what do I do? Well, you sign up for it. You get a username and then you have a feed, a social feed similar to Facebook. You follow creators and you begin posting content yourself and you create this ecosystem. And so um, we want to encourage people to come over and be a part of that system. But then content creators such as yourself, Chris, I mean, you guys are the lifeblood of it. So what we want to see are content creators come over and, and begin posting your content unedited and, and f- speaking freely onto that platform and then utilizing your existing platforms to promote where people can actually find that truth. One of the things that you know sites like Rumble uh, fail to have, and I'm not criticizing them, but one thing they fail to have Uh, is a social media aspect for sharing. And that makes it very difficult. You know, you go and you post on, on Rumble and you say, okay, my video's up. Now, how does anyone know? Well, what you have to do is you have to now copy your link. You have to go back to original social media and say to everyone, hey, on Facebook and on YouTube and on Twitter, this is where you can see it on Rumble, right? And so what we want to do is really build that social media ecosystem again, where people are able to communicate with each other within the system and share content within the system. I think that's critically important um, to how it needs to be done. And also, because you know, our goal is to, to build out our full project onto the blockchain, it's really being designed there in order to set us you know, apart from some of these other companies that if Google and Apple and Amazon decide they want to disappear you from the internet, they do have the power to do that. If you build it through the blockchain, if you build it through decentralized technology the way that we are, they won't have that ability.
1: Well, that's fascinating. And so I know Odyssey's got a a blockchain video uh, piece that's out there and I've been using that, but it does feel like we have to be prepared for this to get a little bit uglier before it gets better. I mean, we're gonna have to be smart. Uh, We don't wanna get parlored, right? I I loved Mm -hmm. what um, the president and CEO, uh, Andrew Torba of of Gab did. He saw the, the, agents provocateurs as it were coming in and trying to load up his his uh twitter analog with uh violent statements he caught it nipped it in the bud didn't happen um but you know parlor wasn't quite as lucky with all that so i'm just saying it's a uh, it'll be a scrum right uh got to be smart oh, about this
0: Absolutely. Listen, they, if, if you think that those who hold power in society will simply give it up easily, there's no way that's going to happen. Right. And, and, and I, I want to say, you know, I think Gab, those guys have done a great job. Andrew has done a great job with Gab um, and he's been smeared so badly and so unfairly. Um, and same thing with Odyssey. Right. So Odyssey, I think, is a great alternative uh, because it is blockchain based and it's great. It, again, it lacks that social media component. Mm-hmm. So sharing becomes a little more difficult. Uh, through that system. You know, I think one thing that's really important uh, is that as we, as we all do this, right? We're all trying to create different, different mechanisms by which to protect ourselves. Um, one thing that we want to do is as we develop out technology and build out kind of a technological structure, we want to share that with other groups and say, hey, use this. Stop building on servers that can be deleted. Stop building in ways that you're going to get taken down because the more of us that are out there, the better. It doesn't have to be one entity, right that rises up like a tower because if that happens and it gets co-opted we're back in square one again so you just have to really protect against that i i i think decentralized answers are the answer i think it's the only true way forward
1: well said my hope in this story ben right now is that i do see an awakening happening um i'm in contact with and i found I've, it's sort of almost like these fires burned away all the intellectual frauds and moral cowards. And then I found the people who are standing tall, and that's been wonderful. And I feel now that, that there is, I feel the winds shifting, that enough people are waking up that, um, whether it's watching, you know, trash pile up in New York because of, of pushback there, or it's, it's people reaching out to me personally by email saying, here's what we're doing. I can, the winds are, are changing. What, what's your hope in this story, if, if I could ask?
0: Yeah, I I agree with you. I think it is changing. I I will say this, that I've been warning people about a lot of these issues for well over a decade. And I will tell you that uh, there are a lot of people who just couldn't hear it. They'd say, well, that sounds a little crazy or that sounds conspiratorial uh, or that sounds extreme. And then you start to live in the extreme and you say, oh God, maybe this guy's not crazy. And so then you start to to wake up, right? And so what what I've told people before is this, that uh, when you're asleep, Nothing gets you up like that sudden jerk, right? Something that just shakes you from your sleep. And so you don't k- kind of come up in a groggy way. You're immediately awake and alert. And I think that's what has happened to millions of people, tens of millions worldwide who were asleep and didn't recognize that, you know what, they've given us a few things. They've given us social media. They've given us uh, entertainment and Netflix all day long and, and you know, food that shows up at our house and products that arrive and we don't even have to think about it. And so we've created this very comfortable, sleepy, lazy society. And now all of a sudden people have been jerked awake and say, wait a minute, what are we doing? Right? And so what, what I couldn't have done in 10 years, uh, I think that tech companies and, and bureaucrats have done in a matter of 18 months, right? awakened tens of millions of people to say, I didn't realize this was a problem, and now I do, right? And so what you find are kind of strange alliances of people who are coming together and pushing back in ways that I think, uh, you know, the the elites, as they like to call them, I I hate that term for them, but that's Mm -hmm. what they think they are, um, in ways that they would never have expected. And you mentioned about the trash piling up in New York or, you know, the, the, the police officers who aren't there, the nursing uh, wards in certain hospitals where maternity wards are closed now because nurses aren't there, right? There is a shift happening where the thought is the harder we squeeze, the more they'll comply, when in fact, the harder we squeeze, the more that slips through your fingers. I think that's what we're living in right now, and I'm, I'm encouraged by that.
1: Well, fantastic, and thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for all your efforts. How do people follow you now? What's the best way?
0: Well, the the best way is go to Sovereign S O V R E N dot media. I post everything there. Obviously, I still post on my other social media channels as well. But really, the only thing I post on those channels is to tell people to go to Sovereign to see content, right? That's essentially what it's used for. So, go to sovereign.media. You can follow me there. All of the content that we're putting up is there, along with stuff that, quite frankly, I'm excited because I could never say these things on other social media. I despise and detest the idea of self censorship as a journalist because I'm afraid that my channel will get deleted. I don't have to worry about that posting on Sovereign. And Chris, we we invite you to come and, and join Sovereign as well uh, to put your content there. We're not an exclusive channel. There's no reason it can't be in multiple places, but the more places it can be, where more people can be exposed to it, the better we think the world will be.
1: Well, thank you for that. And I will certainly be joining up. And for anybody who might be confused, Dot .media, the media forms the same basis as com. So this is not sovereign.media.com. It's just sovereign.media. All right. Well, Ben, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it and all you're doing.
0: Chris, thank you.